four ways you're investing your money wrong. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. When you get the finger guns going, that's how you know this is going to be a good one. That's how you know that this is going to be a I'm great show. I'm one step removed from doing laser sound. <laughs> <laughs> uh, By yeah, the way, I'm, anybody who watched Mixus? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet, but I've Cracked seen the my for teenager it. up. It when, looks... When you, you, anybody watches that. That character, it's the same character that's in Office Space. He is typecast, but in a beautiful way. Okay, okay. rock and roll. So now back to what we're going to talk about in today's show. We're going to talk about four <laughs> ways uh, that you may be investing your money wrong. And we talk about all the time about ways that we ought to think about investing and how we ought to think about utilizing our army of dollar bills. We want to do a little bit of gut check on this show to say, hey, if you're doing some of these things or this describes you, you may want to reconsider the strategy that you're employing presently. The big part, Bo, and this is this is – confessional a little bit is that wisdom comes from experience and that's great you know you get older you go talk to the person maybe you go grab a mentor or you talk to a grandparent or if you've read the wealthy barber you know it's the wealthy barber who lives down the street right but a lot of times this wisdom comes from experience of making their own mistakes yep. and what's funny is we're gonna go over four mistakes today i resemble three of them uh, just, just full disclosure. So we're trying to help you guys all of our years of experience. We want you to gain this wisdom without paying the expensive ticket price of learning from losing your own money. That's the big part of and it. And I think what's great is what we are so fortunate we get to do for a living, being fee-only financial planners, not only uh, have maybe we lived some of these, but we've we've seen every one of these mistakes oh, yeah. uh, perpetrated in either prospects or clients that we, we now work with. So let's jump in. Number one. Cash mistakes. Now, this is one, guys, because we you hear us. We cash mistakes can come in one or two ways. Mm -hmm. The first one is you could just not have enough cash. Yep. I think this is the what you when you think of America and their relationship with cash, you realize most Americans just don't even have an emergency reserves or, or liquidity. What was the stat we always say? It's like 67% of folks don't even have a, a grant. Can't even come up with $1,000 for an emergency. It's so that's crazy. Obviously, a mistake that you're making with cash. The other big mistake, and this is what we want to talk a little bit about today, is, is that you can have too much cash. Mm -hmm. You can have the whole analysis paralysis yep. where you just keep building more and more cash. And this is a trend that here's something shocking. Young people, something's up with you guys. And I want to kind of get into this a little bit because, Bo, go ahead and show them what is, because you would think about it. The way I want you to understand the relationship between risk and reward is while you're young, mm -hmm. while you have decades, by the way, decades is over 10 years. And a lot of times, you younger people, you have 30, 40 years. Right. So for you to be worried about what's going on with the stock market right now is completely crazy to me. Because as you get older, now you minimize your risk right. as you get older. But while you're young, swing for the fences because you have so much time to recover. Plus, more than likely, your behavior is, is you're 
dollar cost averaging. What are we doing here, guys? Yeah, and, and don't mishear us. Obviously, there are times throughout your financial life where it makes sense for you to be hoarding cash. If you're saving up for a down payment or for a house or a big trip or there's some investment thing that you have to do, it makes sense. What we're actually talking about are not folks that are holding cash for a very specific reason. Rather, they're holding it either because they don't know what to do with it, analysis paralysis, or they're scared of the market or they want the sleep at night money or whatever the case may be. And so those are kind of the things that we're going to talk about. And so what I think is interesting, Brian, uh, there was a study that was done uh, by Bankrate and it looked at what are the favorite investments by each generation. And it went through four different generations, millennials, Generation X, baby boomers, and then the silent generation, which yep. was the generation right before the boomers. And the question was asked, hey, what's your favorite type of investment? What's the place that you want to house your money to work for you? So here's what's interesting about this slide, Bo, is that this is not actually how much they have in these asset right. classes. This is how much they actually, if you asked them, hey, what's your favorite thing to invest in? Well, let's, this just blew my mind. So let, let's hit them up. Let's see what the first one is. Millennials. You know, when you think of investing, the first thing I think of is cash. No. Absolutely is, not. Realize, four decades, three decades. What are you saying? Your favorite investment is cash? Let's uh, at least, okay, if their favorite is cash... I'm sure by the time we get to the silent generation, theirs is going to be cash too. So they just got a little order, out of right? order. Yeah. But no, let's go. Let's go talk to Generation X. That's my generation. Wait a minute, stock market. You know, 33% prefer the stock market. Baby boomers, they're a little bit older. 38%. Wait a minute, these guys should be thinking about retiring. They're graying. Why do they love the stock market so much? How about the, the silent generation? These are the people that their parents. You know, were working through the Great Depression. They were actually children during the Great Depression. Surely they're going to be scared of investing and they're going to choose cash. What stock market? Are, are you kidding me? So we have the youngest people who have the most to gain from investing and they're saying their favorite investment is cash. Now, when I looked at this, I, I immediately asked Daniel, I said, Daniel, I got to know what's the percentage that millennials are actually keeping in cash? Because right. maybe there's one thing is that your opinion is that I like cash because I like the comfort. I like what it provides. But surely they're not actually, that's not actually what they're using as sure. their investment. This is what Daniel found for me. Millennials keep 25% of their investments in cash. Now, I, I'm going to give you guys the benefit of the doubt. Bo just laid it out perfectly. Maybe you have a housing down, house down payment. You've got a car that you're you know buying. Maybe you have a wedding or something coming up. But I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of you guys are getting trapped by the thought of this whole in, in analysis right. paralysis. You're, you're just scared to death of what can happen if the market goes down. And, and, and that makes sense. I think it's so interesting, even to you know, the silent generation, that was the generation that grew up in the Great Depression. So the first thing that they knew about money or knew about financial markets was the Great Depression. But they have now lived a life where they've kind of recognized how things work. It's so funny. The millennials, they are the ones that grew up in the Great Recession. They are the ones who saw the housing downturn of 2008 and saw how bad that was. It's interesting that they are tainted by that, but the silent generation has kind of grown through their first interaction with finances being such a poor one. Well, and it's all, we're also, it's the first generation. I'm going to be honest with you guys. The news media has completely mm -hmm. lost their mind on all things. It's not just politics, it's also on the financial world. You can't, and, and a lot of that has to do with, and I explained this in one of the most recent shows on, you know, the biggest ripoffs, is a lot of people think all this fake news phenomenon is all political based. Right. 
and maybe a portion of it is, but a lot of it is also driven by they're broke, guys. Yeah. The news media with the way the internet has revolutionized how content is shared now with the public, your print news media is dying. Mm-hmm. So with desperation comes flapping around. You know, right. if somebody's drowning, the first thing you learn when you're a lifeguard is if you're drowning, if somebody's drowning, a lifeguard to rescue them has to stay away because they might pull you under right. too. Well, that's what's going on with the news media. So do not let the noise freak you out. So let's talk about how do you maximize? What's the techniques that are going to protect you? The first thing, Bo, and we come to this a lot, follow your order of operations. That's exactly right. You know, we've done a number of shows on this. We can even link it in the link below. We talk about if you're going to think about how to employ your dollar of bills, there's an order that you should work through. And while cash is usually at the top of the list, you know, we talk about emergency reserves and having that that thing in place. You do have to graduate down the order of operations. You do have to actually work through the order of operations to know what to do with your money. And a big thing with cash, a lot of people, look, you know cash is something that's important for cash reserves, for emergencies, so that if something bad happens, you're Mm -hmm. covered. So everybody should have some level of cash. What shocked me is the study and the data point that says that only 6% of people are getting better than 2% return on their cash. I found that. And, you know, as of the recording right now, it's just not that hard to go out there and find 2%. I mean, interest rates are at a place right now where cash does yield that. That's more just an error of omission than commission. That's just not being actively engaged in maximizing your financial situation. It's it's just crazy to take something that can be so good for your portfolio, but there is too much of a good thing. Right. That safety and that protection is actually a false sense there. Yep. Um, and then we also put in here, choose investments that fit your risk profile. Now, I'm going to look at you millennials one more time and tell you the cautionary tale of what happened with my household. I grew up in a household where my parents were scared of investing because they didn't know they were not sophisticated. So their choice of investment was cash. Mm -hmm. My dad, you know, had CDs and other things. The only exposure he had to the stock market was with some, you know, stockbroker would get him on the phone and convince him to buy one or two crazy stocks without knowing much. And of course, they would not do well. And then he'd be like, this whole Why system's am I even rigged. Doing Why this? am yeah. I doing this? Meanwhile, my father-in-law, you know, was not, and I will say they're great with money, but I think my parents saved more money as a percentage of their mm-hmm. income than even my in-laws did. But guess what my in-laws are doing? They were buying mutual funds. They were mm-hmm. buying the Fidelity Magellan Fund and other things that if you look at just if they're doing $100 a month, it turned into something magical. That's, right. That's why I'm always amazed also when we look at our get our YouTube comments and others, people are just like, what are you talking about with these rates of returns? Guys, you millennials, you young people, there's an incredible thing. If you love how you, 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 the, the, the technology is advancing, innovations are making your life easier, that is something that can translate into money mm-hmm. in your back pocket if you will just invest in it That's right. through buying into the market. So pay attention to that type of stuff. Now, don't miss here. So if you're someone who's listening to it, say, you know what? You are describing the problem that I've been doing. I've been hoarding cash. I've got all this cash. I'm hearing you say I ought to go invest it. We're not saying just take all of your money and go invest it right now. Not only do you have to choose investments that fit your risk profile well, you also have to choose a strategy that fits it well. We've also done a number of shows on dollar cost averaging versus lump sum investing. If you're someone who's nervous about the markets, nervous about what's going on there, there's nothing wrong with taking the cash you've been hoarding and easing it into the market 
over a period of time. So that way, if the market's going up, it's great. You're making more yep. money. But if it goes down, you're actually buying at lower and lower levels. It's kind of a win-win in both scenarios. It's naturally happening with most young people. And if you are one of these people who comes into a lump sum, you sell a business, sell some real estate or other things, 10 to 12 months is not going to blow up your portfolio right. in the long term. It might save you some psychological or emotional distress. Yep. So 10 to 12 months, we don't freak out if you have a lump sum. But the rest of you, your young people, you should hope for volatility. It's actually your friend. I say that a lot, and we're going to do even a deeper dive on that later. But it is something you should consider. Let's talk about number two. Yep. Focusing on how versus how much in the beginning. Uh, Bo, I resemble this a little bit, and I'm going to go ahead and be confession, confess about this, is that when I was in my 20s, I had the internet fund. Uh-huh. And then uh, you would think I learned a lot because I, you know, in the, one of the first things I tell people about investing is one of the worst things that happen is that you're successful doing it <laughs> the wrong. The first thing you do is well, you get if, it if right. you're successful doing it wrong, you just assume you're brilliant. That's right. No, you just got lucky. Luck, it's better to be lucky than good sometimes for sure. And then I'll fast forward a decade or so and you come on the scene mm-hmm. with me and you start doing this CFA study. Yeah, I had a feeling I was going to get blamed for this Education one. can be awesome, but it can also give you a false sense uh-huh. of knowledge. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. we played around with stock options. We had it all Not with clients. Out. I don't want anybody out there. We did this just with our own personal. We had some mm-hmm. experiments because we had visions that Bo was going to, if hedge fund managers could do it, sure, well, can't I Bo could do, do it. it? So, you know, all these things made us realize the how versus how much, especially for my younger listeners, you gotta not get this wrong because right. this is a huge mistake out there. Um, you know, and we're in a society right now where it seems like anytime we do a show on volatility or mentions the stock market, we have two groups of people that come rushing in to give us their comments. Who are they, Bo? Uh, well, the first one is like, where are those rates of return coming from? Right. How, right. Where, how on earth are you coming up with 10, 12% rate of return? That's just it's unrealistic, impossible. Which is typically, we say, it's the S&P 500, the 500 biggest companies in the United States. But then the second thing is Bitcoin That's people. exactly right. The folks say, oh, I've got a different way to make it. Don't do the stock market thing. you got to do this other new thing that's going to just change the world. And then, of course, the, the naysayers that are scared the, are, are the gold people. Mm-hmm. So those are the people that always show up. But I want to kind of, I want to talk to you about why choosing the investments. You have to be very careful about this is because... Um, it, it's one of those things where if you're saving 20 to 25 percent, you're going to be win the game. That is really it, that is what sets you apart for long-term success, your behavior. You know we, we get to go speak to uh, companies where we help with their 401k plans and we speak to a lot of colleges and high schools and we try to tell uh, folks starting out and if you're if you're someone in your investment portfolio is I don't know, below $200,000, $300,000, you're still early in your accumulation career, we always say that your savings rate is exponentially more important than your rate of return, and you should focus on it as such. Whether you're making 10% or 12% on a small pot of money is very much different than if you're saving 20 to 25% of your income. It's going to have a much bigger impact on your overall financial success than what you're tweaking around the edges on the investment side. I have phone calls because it's not uncommon for us to have clients say, hey, can you speak to my adult children? Mm-hmm. And it always amazes me, and I resembled this so much, so I have, I have complete understanding of it, is when I talk to somebody who's very bright, who's very excited to be out there in the real world making their first real income. Right. And then I talk to them about investing, and they're like, okay, so where should I put my money? And I'm like, 
how about index funds? Uh-huh. And they're always like, index funds? No, no, I mean, what stock should yeah. I buy? Like, Tell me. I'm smarter than that. I kind of, I, I got this thing figured out. And so just be very careful. And let's, let's talk about maximization techniques because it is one of those things we kind of already have alluded to it. If you can save 15 to 25%, get there as soon as possible. You are setting yourself up for long-term That's success. Exactly. The second part of that, and that ties into is automate your That's savings. Exactly right. Make this thing automatic for the people. And the fact that if you can do this where your cash management, your budget plan has the money come out of your accounts automatically and go towards long-term savings goals, guys, you're going to see how easy this is. You won't even miss the money. So automate the savings as much as possible. It's like muscle. You're setting up that muscle That's memory exactly right. for long-term success so that you're, you're 401k with your employer. Not only are you getting the free money with your, your employer match, but you're also maxing out the Roth IRAs and all the things that are going to help you have that tax-free option in retirement. I don't know if you saw this, Brian, but when I, when I first started out, I used to say, okay, well, I'll just pay all my bills and whatever's left over, I'll just save that yep. amount. I'll just save that amount. Now it's kind of the strategy that I tried to start out with in my financial journey. And what I recognized very early is by some miraculous event, there was never any <laughs> money left over. It always just kind of found a way to disappear into different places. When you set, itself, set yourself up to pay yourself first, it's amazing that you don't allow yourself to behaviorally screw that up. We all have leaky houses. Or maybe it's just there's a hole in your wallet. That's right. And the fact that everybody who tries to just say whatever's left, I will do, you're going to find that is a failure of a system. Mm -hmm. Because, And that's why we talk about forced scarcity all the time. Remember, you you start with budgeting. After you have a plan of success where you've already created a cash flow plan where things are going automatically through automation – it's okay that for scarcity, every time you get a new pay raise, every time you have more money coming in, mm-hmm. you go ahead and allocate a portion of that for the future so that you don't get caught right. not respecting how much you need to be saving. And again, we, we always say that you need to be saving 15 to 25%. Well, you might be listening and be like, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near that. I can't do that. I'm just going to give up on this thing. If you can't start there, start somewhere. If all you can do is $20 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month, whatever the number is, start somewhere and you will be amazed at how quickly your army of dollar bills will start working for you. We get this, it's either a YouTube comment or an email comes in to us from a podcast listener. And like, I'm 23 years old. Y'all are talking about saving 25%. I feel like a failure. I'm like, I wasn't saving 25% when I was 23 years old. So I don't want people to get discouraged. It's okay if you have to crawl, then you walk, and then you you start running. That's That's when you are hitting the 20 to 25%. This is why we've done shows for how should my teen invest? Mm -hmm. If I'm a teenager, how should I invest? What's my first investment? We want you guys to understand, remember what even got me to do this for a living was I had an economics teacher in high school tell me if I could save $100 a month, I would be a millionaire. Mm -hmm. By the time I retired, that was like, whoa, are you serious? So guys, a little goes a long way while you're in your 20s. So it's perfectly fine if you need to start small with like $50 a month that is perfectly fine. Yep. We're go- the whole thing is we're trying to encourage the behavior that once you start that process and you see your money start working for you, you go like, wait a minute, that, that $100. Well, let me give you an actual true example. My daughter, y'all know I have a teenage daughter. Mm-hmm. Last year, because she does babysitting and other odds and ends, she has some money. Okay. I do a dollar-for-dollar match on whatever she contributes to her custodial Roth IRA. Okay. She gave me $1,100. So proud. So if you do the math on that, we we set up a $2,200 uh-huh. custodial Roth IRA. 
That account is now worth close to $2,600. And it's only been a year and a half since we set this thing up. And I have to believe that in her mind, she's thinking, wait, wait, wait. I just put $1,100 in and now I've got $2,600? Yeah. That has to be getting her excited about saving and investing and building for the future. Well, it affirms behavior of the fact that when she starts her first real job, there is a dollar-for-dollar match. It's probably going to come from her employer. And then the second thing is, as you can see, almost half is also coming from the market working Mm -hmm. just as hard. So it is an incredible learning opportunity that just that behavior, Mm -hmm. you're going to get addicted. You're going to say, wait a minute. I just put $1,100. It's now worth $26. I need to get more of this. I, I like that. I want more of it. And you're going to see that your $50 a month turns into 100 until eventually it is 20 to 25% That's of right. your gross income. So, so let that be a lesson. Focus on what you're doing and you know the behavior versus where it's going that's to. Right. And that's, that's the last point on the maximization techniques. Don't even pick an investment. The world is, it's a lot easier now than it was 30 years ago. Well, you, a lot of people, when they hear that, don't pick an investment at all. You're like, is it leave it in cash? No, you can do target retirement funds. You can set up index funds. Think about it. Fidelity is now offering zero That's funds, right. meaning they have zero minimum, zero cost. I mean, it is, it, it's, you know, and it's a loss leader. They're hoping that you get so addicted to them that you'll open up all kind of other product lines in the future. I get why they're doing it, and it's also because there's a price war between Fidelity and Vanguard. Take advantage of this. Yep. Let this innovation that's going on in the technology and the, in the investment world be to your benefit. You know, target retirement funds, all you have to do, you choose the year you think you're going to need the money or the year that you think financial independence will be yours. It does the rest. It's aggressive while you're young. It, it, the glide path takes it to where it's more conservative as you get closer to retirement. So easy peasy. So mistake number one is that you're making cash mistakes. Mistake number two is focusing on how versus how much early on. What is mistake number three? Oh, man. Being easily distracted. Now you're like, whoa, that's a broad one. What do you mean by easily being distracted? Here's what I want you guys to understand. As you start getting out in the real world, you start making money, you're going to realize everything's not black and white mm-hmm. like you thought it was going to be. Right. And that, that leads to not only just your worldview and, and how things happen, it also hits your wallet because you're going to find that there's when you have more cash, you have more free cash mm-hmm. flow that can be distracted by consumerism, That's meaning right. there's people that want to sell you stuff to consume, you know, like better clothes, better cars, better houses. But then there's also, because you have free cash flow, because you've got your first real job and you're working or you're having more success, it doesn't have to be your first job. It can be somebody who get a big promotion. You're in your 30s and 40s. You got the kids covered. Now you got some actual jingle in the pocket. People want to get in your wallet. They're going to try to start selling you products, you know, life insurance and other things. How do you protect yourself from that? So we want to give you some foundational knowledge. Bo, you're our CFA on staff. Walk them through, because this is the fool's gold of the world, and we kind of alluded to this on one of the second mistakes of how investing works. Talk to them about the tried and true um, success of in- index investing. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, back back in the day, you used to have to go do some research and figure out how to invest and what you're going to invest and what you're going to buy. Technology has changed the world since about the 1980s ish, yeah. where now you can actually directly buy index funds that make it a lot easier. Rather than you going out and determining, okay, do I need to buy? Apple or Google or Home Depot or fill in the blank, you can go buy an index, a passive investment, 
and it's a lot cheaper and you don't have to think about it. You can actually buy all of those together rather than going to pay a manager who's going to say, you know what, I can pick the, if I'm looking at the S&P 500, I can pick the 40 of the 500 funds that are going to perform better. Sometimes they might be right, but when you kind of look at the numbers, it, it, it's not a high probability <laughs> scenario that they're going to be right. So if you can't go out and beat the market, why wouldn't you just go out and buy the market? And that's exactly what passive investing is. It's just participating in the rising tide that's going to lift all the boats. So let's give them some data. I sure. love when Daniel pulls data for us, and we'll make sure we give the data points so our podcast listeners yep. who don't get it visually also understand what's going on here. So active versus passive management. This is, do you buy the index fund or do you buy somebody who says they can do better than the, the index fund? And here's what we found was interesting. Yeah, so we're only looking at domestic equities. So large cap, mid cap, and small cap. We didn't venture out into like international or asset classes. Um, and so we wanted to say of active managers, how many beat the market, beat the index that they're pegged to over a 15-year time that's, period? That's a decent right? period of time. So when we think about large cap, these are the companies that you've all heard of, Apple's, Google's, Home Depot's, those types of companies. <laughs> 8%. So wait a minute. We want to make sure everybody understands what they're hearing and looking at. How many active managers beat the market? 8%. Now, I'm going to do the other side of that math. Mm -hmm. That means the S&P 500 beats 92% of active management oh, over 15 years. That's exactly what that says. Wow. All right. Well, okay. So there aren't as- That can't get worse, can so it? So there aren't as many large- I mean, there, there aren't as many large cap because they're in mid cap. So surely if you're like a mid cap manager, you can go you know, get into the details of the balance sheets and statements. So mid cap managers surely have to be more successful, right? <laughs> I love, by the way, I, I, I'm describing this because I want my podcast listeners to know. These things, like the first one is a guy who's crying. It's a, it's a cartoon character who's crying. The mid cap is 5%. Only 5% of active managers beat the mid cap index. Now Daniel has them holding a box. I had a visual immediately of somebody who just got laid off, <laughs> you know, because they're carrying their box of goods down to the car. So 95% of managers are getting beat mm -hmm. by the index fund. Let's look at small cap. This one blew my mind because it was not too long ago that you would tell everybody, go buy large cap because that's an efficient market. Mm -hmm. But small cap and international, those the potentially active are managers are, active managers yep. could do it because it's an inefficient marketplace. What does the data actually show us? It actually shows us that only 2% <laughs> of active small cap managers beat the market over a course of 15 years, beat their stated index. So the graphic that Daniel chose on this one is the guy just straight up has a bag on his head. <laughs> so because 98% of the time, active management in the small cap space was beat by just buying the the index for small cap. That's now, incredible. Now I, now, I can already hear people saying this because I have people give me this argument all the time. No, but look, there are managers who can do it. Look, there are 8% of large cap and 5% of mid cap and 2% of small cap that can do that. I've just got to go make sure I pick those managers. Yeah, I mean, you also just got to make sure you pick the right numbers when you play the lottery. It's kind of the same sort of analysis. The, the, the deck is stacked against you. It's just a lot easier to get really low-cost, broad, diversified exposure across index funds. Well, and also there's consistency. That's exactly so this, right. So this 15 years, we're going to fast-forward another 15 years. There's a good chance the 8% that mm -hmm. outperforms 15 years in the future is going to be a different group, but yet we're going to be comparing it to the exact same investment, exactly which is right. the S&P 500. So, so just be aware of that. This is the dirty little secret of the investment marketplace is I think a lot of people in the that are managers – 
they buy index funds for themselves. We call them closet indexes. Yeah. So I mean, just just be aware of that. So let's move on to the second thing that, that I think with talking about distractions, I'm looking at my successful group, and there's a reason you'll notice it by the title. Dumb doctor deals. Yep. These are people who have good incomes because they have good incomes. It doesn't have to be just doctors. It could be small business owners. It's, it's people that out in the public are perceived to be successful. Right. It could be accountants, too, and attorneys, is that people will come and try to start pitching mm-hmm. you sexy investment products. I will tell you, when I first started managing money, I fell into this gaping hole. They didn't even have to put pine straw on top of it. I just, just fell in right this on. thing as an investment professional. I was in my 20s, started working on, you know, passed all my tests. I was managing assets. And then, you know, when you hear about these sexy investments that have a $100,000 minimum, uh-huh. and that this is what wealthy people are right. doing, like separate account management, hedge funds, these private placements, all these deals, I'm like, you know what? I want my parents to be in that. They should if it's, be in that, If it's yeah. good enough for those rich folks, my mom, who's a school teacher, my dad, who's a salesman, you know, they should have this too. So I took my dad's, they realized they didn't have a ton of money. Because remember, I told you earlier, their idea of investing was cash. With CDs. So my dad had an IRA with $108,000 in it. Okay. That's what he had uh-huh. in his IRA. You know what that ought to be in? A separate account management <laughs> for lar- with a ar- large cap focus. So a separate, a separate account manager, a separately managed account is something where there's actually a manager for your dad picking individual stocks across that $108,000, So the right? minimum was $100,000. My dad had a, an IRA with $108,000. Why not load it up in there because it's sexy? This is what rich people do with their money. And so this is what I put my father into. By the way, this is a cautionary tale on why you should also be very wary of financial advisors in their first two years of managing assets. They don't know what they're doing yet. There's a reason that we have the 10,000 hours and five years of experience so that you're not their big science project on how capital markets work. So I I will tell you, my poor parents, they loved me more than they knew that they should not be investing with me my first two years of managing. But here's what I found. And this is why you need to pay attention, just because it's teachable for you as well with dumb doctor deals. Is my dad immediately said, "Son, why am I getting all this mail in the mail? You know, why is all this stuff coming in in the mail?" Because he's getting probably he's prospectus, getting prospectus every he's time there's a proxies, buy sell. He's getting annual disclosures, and he's like, "And why do I only owe four shares of this? Why, why, why do I only own three shares of this?" And I was like, "Well, it's because we we had, we only had eight thousand dollars more than the minimum, <laughs> Dad. You know, so they have to go buy you their their seventy five different holdings." You're just not going to get a lot of shares. So it was just, there's a lot of things. And guess what? Private deals are also illiquid. So even if you're unhappy, you have a hard time voting with your Mm -hmm. feet and leaving the situation. It's just, guys, and and this is the big part, is I did it out of order. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting more sophisticated with your portfolio design and other things, because we do it all the time with tax location, you know, making sure that the asset allocation looks good. But make sure that that's not you're not getting it out of order. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. You know, we there are some private placement, private equity type investments that are actually turn out really well for some of our clients out there. But one of the things that we always tell them is you have to get your baseline army of dollar bills in place before you start bringing in special forces. That's just not what you have to do. We see this happen all the time, especially like rental real estate folks yep. who want to go out and start buying houses, flipping houses, turning them into rental properties. That's a great 
great way to build wealth, but it might not be the way that you build wealth right out of the gate. It needs to come in the right amount of time. And then consumption, we've talked about this briefly. Don't forget deferred gratification, guys. It's easy to get distracted, especially with the way society is set up to encourage you to consume versus save. Just do not forget that's going to be the cornerstone of building wealth is deferred gratification. Here's some maximization techniques. Don't get sold a product. We always say just follow the money. Know what the people selling it to you get paid. Know how they get paid. And understand truly what your investment costs. If you can't answer that question, you might not need to put your money there. And then invest in what you know. If it seems so sophisticated, so complex that your head's spinning, don't do it. That's right. Because it shouldn't be. You know, what we have found is there's a reason index investing is tried and true. It's Mm -hmm. simple. You're buying the 500 biggest companies in the United States. You, you know, you can understand. You can get your arms around what Apple is, what Home Depot is, and what you know those type of companies mm-hmm. are. You don't have to if you don't invest in what you don't know. You won't get yourself in a twisted That's situation. Exactly right. And then lastly, know where you are on your financial jury yep. and journey. I don't know why jury, but know where you are on your financial journey because that's going to help you keep things in perspective and 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 not get the risk out of the whack, not to get too you know sophisticated with your investments. It just everything's going all over that's the right. place. Um, let's move on to number four: not adjusting your risk profile. Right. This is one you know I want to use a football analogy, Bo. Okay, seems appropriate this time of year. Well, especially, yeah. And, and one of the things, it's, it's boring TV, but there's a reason. I, I completely get it. Is if you got a team that's up by 30 points in the fourth quarter mm-hmm. with less than two minutes, you just know that it's now comes a game of how many timeouts they have, can we take a knee right. to let the clock just run that's out. Right. And they're just going to run the ball because guess what? If you run the ball, you have less likely it's going to be intercepted. Yep. It's, just, it's just not as risky as if you – drop back in the pocket, and throw a big bomb down right, there. Right, right. You don't have to do that. You're up by 30 points. Yep. There's less than two minutes. You just need to run the clock out. Like I said, boring TV, but guess what it gets you? A win you the w. at the end of the game. You win. because, And that's one of those things that I think coaches, they realize, I've won the game. Why would I do anything? Because there are folly examples mm-hmm. where people will do something stupid. And you're like, he had the game won. Why did that coach it make that call? Lose, yep. That was just stupid. He shot himself in the foot and lost. We see this time and time again with people and their personal investments. That's right. I mean, and I'm looking at you entrepreneurs. A lot of you entrepreneurs, you're like, I made millions because I started this company, I started this company. So risk has been your best friend. The volatility and the risk of you might lose money has made you a lot of money. So you now have this respect, you have this relationship, and you're like, why wouldn't I want to keep doing this? The problem is you're probably at the point in your life where you have to understand that there is a risk capacity versus risk tolerance discussion. Bo, walk them through the difference between risk capacity and risk tolerance. Risk tolerance is exactly what it sounds like. It's how much risk can you tolerate. So if you're an entrepreneur or someone who's really comfortable with wild swings in the market or crazy investment ideas, you might have a really high risk tolerance. Risk capacity is how much risk can your financial situation handle. So even though you might have all the tolerance in the world and you'll never lose any sleep, if you don't have the time or the liquidity or the financial resources to be able to have a large capacity for risk, your financial circumstances might not match your capacity. So you have to understand how you marry those two 
One of the big mistakes, you already said it, Brian, is we see folks who only ever operate off of risk tolerance and yeah. never factor in as they age, as their risk profile changes, that they have to take into account the capacity they have for risk as well. Yeah, do you have enough time to recover if That's this right. thing gets its teeth kicked in? Yep. And like I said, why, if you've won the game, why even put that upon yourself? It yep. just doesn't make sense. So here's some maximization techniques that we wanted to share. Know when to slow down. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of those things you got to, just like we look up at a scoreboard to know where we are with things, it's perfectly fine to have a retirement analysis done. I just had a, a comment come in last night where it was a 40-something-year-old, saved a ton of money, and he's like, I just don't know if should I be saving more, should mm -hmm. I be saving less, because I'm personally frustrated I don't have a million dollars in the account. Right. But then he had all these other great, he just didn't know where he was. He yeah. was kind of flopping around. So know when to slow down so you can figure out if you got to hit the accelerator, if you got to take your foot off the accelerator, if you got to adjust the risk profile. Exactly. That's pay attention to that. And then set yourself up for success. Um, if you know if you put in the hard work in your younger years, you're going to be in a better place exactly right. as you get in your mid-40s and 50s. And I don't think – this is a easy – the 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 more effort you put in early on, the less hard you have to work later on. If you miss out on those early years when you have time on your side, you got to work really hard to make up that lost time. So put the effort in early. This is one. Um, don't be scared to ask for professional help. Yeah. I look back. You know, I've already told you the story of my in-laws versus my parents. One understood the power of investing one understood the power of saving, but just never let the army of dollar bills actually do the work for them. I think this is where if you get to a point where your assets have grown to the level that they're so successful, you know, this is a chance of a lifetime. I don't want to screw this up. Mm -hmm. Don't be scared to work with a professional because they can do the, the, the stress testing. They can tell you where you are in your journey. There's a lot of value, right. especially as you're getting close to retirement. And then, Bo, you, you, we had on there, know your why. That's, you, you mentioned the guy who said, you know, I've, got, I've already saved up all this money. I've hit this financial independence. Now what? Maybe the answer is, okay, yeah, keep saving money. Keep building so that eventually you can leave a legacy for your kids. Or maybe it is... Start spending the money. Go yeah. from a saver to a spender. Take your foot off the accelerator. You have to understand ultimately what is your money a tool to allow you to do? What are the things that are important to you? What's your why behind the decisions you're making? If you can answer that question, you're going to set yourself up for success. So, Bo, closing out, give them the four mistakes that we kind of covered today. Yep. We said first, cash mistakes. Either not holding enough or holding too much. Number two, focusing on how uh, versus how much in the beginning. Number three, allowing yourself to become easily distracted. And then number four, not adjusting for risk throughout your financial journey. All these things, if you can understand these basic elements and components, you will be successful. Right. I mean, no doubt. And you're probably wondering, okay, these guys are loading me up. I keep, this is, you know, maybe my second, third, fourth show. And I'm like, every time there's some nuggets in there that give me a little bit more and they're going deep enough that I can actually practice this. There's actionable stuff. How are these guys and why are they giving away free information? I want to kind of just tell you guys, the abundance cycle is something we've been practicing since 2006. That's right. What we want you to do is we want you to come, learn, apply, grow your assets till you reach this point of success that we had talked about and kind of that final mistake that we see people make is where you're getting so big, you've won the game, why would you blow this up? Why not bring somebody in to give you the second opinion, look over your shoulder and tell you, yes, this is what your plan should be. This is how much you should be saving. Mm -hmm. This is how much you could actually start spending right. right now. Why aren't you considering this? Is this risk out here that's in your blind spot going to derail everything? All that comes into play. We're hoping you will be so successful that you'll pay us back and say, 
yeah, I, I think I need a financial professional. Yeah. Why not check out those guys at Abound Wealth that have been giving me great advice since 2006? And that's where we're here for, guys. And here's the other thing. We're constantly growing this thing. We want to influence. We also want to be a resource for you. So you probably noticed, if you haven't gone to moneyguy.com, given us your email address, but you also need to be checking out some of the new content mm-hmm. that we're putting out there. We are blogging. We're actively blogging again. There's a brand new, we're working on it, we're putting the final touches on it right now. Why are young people afraid to take risk? Go to the website, and you, especially all you millennials that I picked on throughout this episode, go check out the blog because we add even more data points, go deeper dives, you got to be looking at that stuff. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. Anything else I missed on that, bro? Yeah, if you're watching this video on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. You can see the counter back behind us. We do a live stream every other Tuesday at 4.45. We have a live chat that goes on in that. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, please do. And thank you so much for staying in with us, for listening to us. Go check out the website, moneyguy.com. Go check out the Abound website, aboundwealth.com. Money Guy team, out. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. Brian Preston is a principal with Abound Wealth Management. Abound Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Security and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Abound Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.